0: Mindspace podcast. I'm Joe Flanders. Thanks for tuning in. I got really lucky to have a chat with Dr. Jean Twenge on the podcast today. Jean's a professor of psychology at San Diego State University, and her research focuses on generations, characteristics of generations, and differences between generations. She's an author of more than 140 publications and books on this topic, including Generation Me, which is an exploration of millennials, and her most recent book which we got into today is called iGen. Why today's super connected kids are growing up less rebellious, more tolerant, less happy, and completely unprepared for adulthood. And of course this book introduces the world to the first generation of adolescents to grow up with smartphones in their pockets. You can find lots of information about Jean at Jean That's J-E-A-N-T-W-E-N-G-E.com. I got to talking to her because uh, she was invited to uh, give a lecture in Montreal next week. She was invited by OMETS, and uh, she'll be speaking as part of OMETS's annual Betty and Bernard S. Shapiro Family Lecture Series. Uh, The lecture is free and open to the public, and will be of interest to parents and their children who want to better understand the effects of smartphones on our families relationships and behavior. The lecture is May 14th, uh, so Monday evening, and the doors open at 7 p.m. The lecture will actually start at 7.30. And it's at the Zion Congregation uh, 5575 cotes St. Road in Montreal. You can register by going to ometz.ca, O-M-E-T-Z.ca um, or you can call them at 514-342-0000 Just a quick shout out uh, for Ometz because they're an important um, organization here in Montreal. Uh, they're a charitable organization offering employment, immigration, school and social services to help people fulfill their potential and secure the growth and vitality of the Montreal community. My conversation with Jean was somewhat brief compared to some of the other episodes on the Mindspace podcast, but it was still very informative and thought-provoking. I'm especially interested in the impact of smartphones on well-being in general and performance. I've written about it and I've spoken in the media about it, but Jean's work caught my attention as a father of two little girls. As you'll hear, uh, she gives us parents and mental health professionals a lot to reflect on when it comes to the question of how to manage kids' use of the internet and smartphones and this whole technological revolution we're right in the middle of. Uh, I feel she has a huge amount of credibility in this space. She has a huge amount of like good, rich data to work with. She's a smart and careful scientist and has obviously given this uh, a lot of thought. She also um, has a very uh, accessible and memorable way of speaking about these issues, and that's probably because she makes a lot of appearances in in some very influential U.S. media outlets, including Time Magazine, USA Today, New York Times, The Washington Post, Good Morning America, CBS This Morning, Dateline, NPR, etc. She also has a really good TEDx talk, which I will hopefully link to in the show notes. In our conversation, we talked about her research and what she's learned about iGen. Um, We've talked about the really clear findings she's picked up about the mental health problems this generation is facing, and why she thinks it truly is associated with, if not caused by, their use of smartphones. Um, Why smartphones are different from other disruptive technologies that we've seen in previous generations, and what parents and professionals can do about all these things. And so here is my conversation with Dr. Jean Twenge. Okay, I'm very pleased to have Dr. Jean Twenge on the podcast today. She is the author of iGen, Why Today's Super Connected Kids Are Growing Up Less Rebellious, More Tolerant, Less Happy, and Completely Unprepared for Adulthood. Jean, welcome. Thank you. All right, so... Maybe you could start by telling us a little bit about the research you've been doing on generations. Uh, sounds like you've been at it for quite a while and have quite a bit of experience in this area.
1: Yeah, I started looking at generational differences when um, I was a university undergraduate because I was trying to understand my own generation, Generation X, and how we were different from those who came before us. And as my career continued, time passed, and I started to look at millennials And then started to see patterns um, in the data suggesting that after the millennials, there was a new generation on the scene born 1995 and later, and I call them iGen.
0: Okay. Maybe you could uh, explore a little bit what you intended with that name.
1: So I think iGen makes sense as a name for this generation because they are the first to spend their entire adolescence with smartphones. So- iGen is a little bit of a play on an iPad or an iPhone and among uh, teens, according to some surveys, three out of four of them have an iPhone, not just a smartphone, but an iPhone.
0: Wow. Okay. Um, And I I know that in your view, that has a big impact on their development and their mental health and stuff like that. Maybe before we jump into that, you could tell us a little bit about what we know about this generation and how they might differ from the millennials and Gen Xers and even baby boomers.
1: So I look at generations using these very large nationally representative surveys of teens and young adults. So I keep an eye on the trends in, in those Data sets and been doing a number of projects on them when I started to notice a rather sudden change uh, around 2011 or 2012 in the responses of um, teens, especially around questions having to do with how they're spending their time and how they were feeling. And these were changes that were so sudden and so large, they were very unusual. Because I have been doing this for a long time. I got used to seeing changes that were fairly large, but would take a decade or two to get there. And then I started seeing, seeing these much more sudden changes. So for example, more teens started to say that they felt lonely and that they felt left out. And more started to say that they felt like they couldn't do anything right. Or that their life wasn't useful. And those last two are classic symptoms of depression. So it became clear that there was a generational break uh, between the teens, you know, 2010 and before, and those about 2011, 2012 and later, and that something was going wrong in the lives of teens, that so many more were saying that they were lonely and depressed.
0: Um, What else do we know about? this generation compared to the others? Or is that really the main uh, feature that you look at?
1: Well, that was the most sudden change, but there are many, many other generational changes. So the, the book uh, looks at 10 different trends across 10 different areas. So there are also differences based on uh, political beliefs and on attitudes toward family and marriage, attitudes toward work, and religion, and fundamental shifts in how this generation spends their time—it's kind of difficult to know where to start. There are so many differences, right?
0: Just for the sake of clarity, here, would you attribute all of those differences to the the impact of smartphones and their connectivity, or is that just one of the one of the variables that you're tracking?
1: Well, it depends on which trait or attitude. Um, or behavior you're looking at. In some cases, it seems clear that the differences are due to the rise of the smartphone. In other cases, it's more likely that it's part of a larger cultural trend um, or that there's other forces that are operating to create those differences.
0: Okay. Let's dive into the this mental health question because I think that's what I'm most interested in and probably what our listeners are most interested in. So some, some fairly stark and clear changes uh, or differences with earlier generations. And you seem to put, again, the sort of the role of the smartphone and their connectivity really at the center of this. And I know that you're, uh, you treat this issue of causality versus correlation with a high degree of sensitivity in the book. Uh, I'm just curious to know, why is that so central in your view to... Uh, these mental health issues that you're picking up on.
1: You mean, why is the smartphone so central?
0: Yes. Yes.
1: So in seeing that big spike in in loneliness and depressive symptoms, and by the way, the same trend also shows up in clinical level depression, in self-harm. So things like cutting or taking too many pills in suicide rates, in anxiety, um, suicidal ideation. I mean, it's a very, very consistent trend that around 2010, 2011, 2012, right around that same period in many different surveys, including behaviors, as well as attitudes, as well as screening studies, there was this sudden spike in mental health issues. There was also a decline in happiness and in life satisfaction and in self esteem. So this is a very, very consistent pattern. So, Mm That, of course, then begs the question of why. What happened Mm -hmm. around 2011 that could have possibly caused this? So it's that period about 2011 to 2016 when most of these changes were happening, which is a pretty brief period of time. It's very unusual to see changes that are that fast. So this is data um, from the U.S., although data from other countries often shows the same pattern, and that was a period of economic improvement. Uh, in the U.S. So there was a great recession, but that lasted from 2007 to 2009 with unemployment peaking in 2010. So that period from 2011 to 2016 was a time when the economy was improving. Usually when the economy improves, what you'd expect is people will be happier and less depressed. And in fact, it was the opposite. So it didn't seem like economic cycles were at the root of this. Other economic trends like income inequality or changes in the job market those have been going on for decades, at least since the '80s. Didn't show a sudden change in uh, around 2011, so it didn't seem like economic factors were to blame. Um, so then I had to start to consider what else could possibly have caused this. And there, were, it was tough at first. I, I was struggling to try to figure out what 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 it could possibly be. There, there weren't any other really cataclysmic political or um, other types of events. They could have explained it, but then I had been working on another project using these data sets and finding teens weren't spending as much time hanging out with each other in person, so on in-person social interaction with each other. They just weren't doing that as much, and that trend kind of started around 2000, but it really accelerated at the same time that depression and unhappiness were spiking Run. 2011 or so, really kind of fell off a cliff, the amount of time that teens were spending with their friends face-to-face. So that brought me to realizing, well, why? Why were teens spending less time with each other face-to-face? Because of the smartphone, because they were spending more time communicating electronically. So that seemed to bring it all together with the realization that it was that fundamental shift in how teens interact with each other socially toward electronic communication away from face-to-face communication that could potentially be at the root of this sudden change in their mental health.
0: Yeah, it certainly sounds plausible to me. Although, on face value, why would online communication not be as satisfying and fulfilling to kids as being together in person?
1: Well, we we know from a bunch of studies that it, it's just not. That... Um, there's just there's many, many studies on this, but here's just just one example. Um, there was a true experiment done with college students and half of them interacted with each other electronically and the other half face to face. And that electronic communication was not as fulfilling emotionally. They didn't feel as emotionally close to the person as when they communicated face to face, which makes a lot of sense you when know, you think about how our brains evolved to need social interaction and the feedback that we get a a lot of it it's not just the words it's the expression on the other person's face that you're there physically with someone you can touch them you can hear the tone of their voice you can see the expression on their face you're there with them and that's what our brains seem to respond to electronic communication uh, many times is not in real time you have to wait to hear back from the other person it's um often just words or pictures. You're not there with the person face-to-face in in real time. And it is a pale shadow of the fulfillment that we get in interacting with each other. So you can kind of think about it like food, that seeing a friend face-to-face is like eating an apple, a whole food, a natural food. Communicating with someone on Snapchat or Instagram is more like eating Apple Jacks. It's a food-like product and it may feel like food for an hour uh, and then it isn't very fulfilling in terms of nutrition or in terms of your energy on a long-term basis.
0: I really like that metaphor. makes a lot of sense to me. I'm sure you get uh, this question a lot, um, maybe a little bit of pushback from skeptics about this hypothesis that um, you're proposing. Um, But how is this different from other periods where a new disruptive communication technology came into play. So in the 60s and 70s, I'm sure people were freaking out about TV. And I'm sure we can go back even further and talk about when the telephone came on board. What's the big deal this time?
1: Well, there's some similarities and some differences to these previous technological revolution. So first, let's talk about the differences. First, the smartphone is portable. It goes with people everywhere they go, so it is a constant distraction, and it can be brought into in-person social interaction situations and distract from those, and it is so constantly available and so addictive, at least some have argued, that that might be why teens and many adults are spending so much time with this technology. So uh, Common Sense Media, for example, looks at the amount of time teens spend with technology and their most recent data suggests that it's eight or nine hours a day of leisure time. That has teens have never watched TV that much. So it's a technology that has really overtaken an enormous amount of leisure time. So that's one of the things that makes it different. There are some similarities, though, in that let's take television as an example. Television um, was another technological revolution. It happened more slowly. It was in the house instead of outside of it, like smartphones. But people, you know, you mentioned, you know, people being worried about television's impact on society in the 60s and 70s. Those worries were not unfounded. And I think that's something that's often ignored in that, in that argument. So as, as just as a couple of examples... There's a book called Bowling Alone by Robert Putnam, which is about the the breakdown in community life and uh, civic engagement and community groups. And it's like 800 page or so book. And his conclusion at the end of the book is these community groups fell apart because people were watching television instead. Um, Similarly, when you look at how people spend their time, people who watch a lot of hours of TV are also more unhappy and depressed than those who interact with other people face to face. So I would scratch my head a little bit when people say, oh, people said the same thing about TV and everything's fine. Everything is not fine. It really did have a big impact on society. And for the most part, although there are some positives, certainly just like with smartphones, um, not all the effects were positive. Many of them were negative.
0: Right. I wonder what your take is on what I'm perceiving as a growing uh, level of concern in the community at large, not just with kids, but um, this growing sense that smartphones are addictive uh, to everybody. And in many ways, they're designed to be addictive based on the business models of the people creating the hardware and the software. Uh, I know I just discovered recently that Google is launching a digital well-being campaign to help people use their phones more with more wisdom, let's say. Are you concerned about that?
1: Yes. Um, And there's been some debate over whether we should call it addiction or not. I think it doesn't really matter whether you call it addiction or overuse. The problem is the same. So I think we need more of these types of initiatives and more ways for people to find um, smart ways of, of limiting their device use. Because that's where the data really points. So there's lots of studies on both adults and teens and all of them seem to point to the same conclusion that these technologies are not going away and they're very useful. And thus, people who, let's, let's take teens, for example, who aren't on social media at all or who don't use electronic devices at all, they're actually not particularly happy. The happiest teens are those who use social media or use um, electronic devices a little bit, so an hour or so a day. And then once you get beyond two hours a day of use, that's when uh, you start to see the links to unhappiness and depression and so on. So I think that's the real key is limited use. So these initiatives, like what Google is doing, are um, a first step in trying to get people to limit their use, to use the phone for what it's good for and then Mm -hmm. put it down. One of the specific things that Google has is you can set a bedtime and then the screen will gray out to remind you of it. I would go a step further. Um, Parents, for example, if they're having issues with their teens staying up late on the phone, you can put an app on that phone that'll literally shut it down at bedtime. Um, And that is really crucial because that's something we haven't talked about yet is the effect of these devices on sleep. I mean, that has the potential to be the whole story, though, even the whole explanation behind the, the mental health uh, issues is that with devices and phones kind of taking over our lives, they, they're portable, they go into the bedroom, and they keep people awake, um, both because they're psychologically stimulating and because they're physiologically stimulating because the blue light from those devices shines into our eyes and tricks our brains into thinking it's still daytime. And then we don't produce the melatonin that we need to fall asleep.
0: Mm -hmm. I'm actually really curious about this hypothesis about the devices being addictive. And I wonder what your take would be on the hypothesis that a lot of what we're seeing in terms of the impact on mood is actually kind of withdrawal symptoms from a highly rewarding experience.
1: So that it's possible that that's that's part of it. Um, That's not what I've been able to look at in my research I mean I've been focusing more on time displacement of spending so much time on devices that it displaces time for more beneficial activities like face-to-face social interaction and sleep um, but there are others who have taken a look at those areas with uh, you know that the they're potentially addictive, which is one reason why people spend so much time on them plus, then uh, what happens when you put it down that you just want to pick it back up again because of that dopamine loop in the brain?
0: Right. This is an interesting opening uh, for something I wanted to ask you about. I became aware of some research saying that the impact of like computer and smartphone use on adolescents' mood is actually less than something like skipping breakfast or losing sleep. And so you sort of pointed at this earlier that the, smart, the, the impact of smartphone use might be indirect and might be happening through sleep. I wonder how you'd process that data.
1: Yeah, I have read that before as well. And I found that a strange analogy because we're talking about, you know, missing a meal or, you know, losing sleep. Those are pretty important and pretty impactful things in terms of physiology. Um, so I, it's not all that surprising that those would have a large effect and perhaps, larger than the, than the direct uh, effect of, of spending time um, on electronic devices. I don't think that's particularly shocking or newsworthy. Um, but that indirect effect, I, I think, is where we need to spend at least some of our attention. That, And we, we know this from lots of research that um, spending a lot of time on electronic devices, particularly the time before bed, um, interferes with sleep. And sleep deprivation and lack of um, good quality sleep is a huge risk factor for mental health issues as well as compromising physical health as well. Um, so here's here's one way to think about this. You know, the, the folks who who say, well, you know, these other effects are bigger, or you know, oh, the effects are small. Well, you know, you get a doubling of dep- of uh, of um, unhappiness between you know between those who spend a little bit of time online and those who spend a lot i don't think that's small but okay let's just for the sake of argument play devil's advocate and say okay let's say that spending time on devices is a wash let's just call it a neutral we're going to call the debate a draw even if we do that then if those devices are crowding out the time people used to spend sleeping and seeing their friends face to face the effects could be exactly the same.
0: Okay. I'm curious also to ask you about some of the data that you discussed and I've seen elsewhere about kids being better behaved in a way. So they're using dr- less drugs and alcohol than they used to. They're less physically violent. They're having sex less or later. And again, there are other explanations for this, including like maybe people are spending or kids are spending more time with closer families or they're highly invested or committed to their academic work. Do you think that this uh, the smartphone use thing is playing out in this area as well?
1: So um, characterizing those trends as teens being better behaved um, may have some truth to it, but misses the big picture. The big picture is that teens are growing up more slowly. They're eventually going to drink alcohol and have sex. They're just doing it later. So this is part of a much larger cultural story of what's called uh, a slow life strategy, that parents these days, we have fewer children and we nurture them more carefully. And this tends to happen in times and places where we live longer and expect education to take longer. So for example, um, by the end of grade 12, when students are 18 or almost 18, iGen students compared to previous generations are less likely to have their driver's license, to work at a paid job, to go out without their parents, to drink alcohol, to have sex, and to date. Those are all activities that adults do and children don't. So they've in the past been considered milestones of adolescence. So if you, and you look at that list and you say, well, you know, some of those are really good, of course, but what about driving and what about having a paid job? What about going out without your parents? Are those good or bad? They're neither one. And so if you just see things as good and bad, you're going to miss that big picture when the real story is that teens are simply taking longer to grow up. And that has advantages and disadvantages. So I think that characterization of, of better behaved misses that large picture. It is true that they're also less likely to physically fight with each other. This is a generation very, very concerned with safety, um, physical safety as well as emotional safety. And that has a huge number of positives. It has some downsides too. If we have a generation who's unwilling to take risks, that might be smart risks to take. Um, cultural change is a trade-off and it's a real trap to just see things as as, uh, good or bad.
0: Right. Yeah, thank you for that clarification. I think uh, a lot of what you're talking about can cause significant concern for parents and even for adolescents. I have two little kids and I see the incredible pull that these devices have. I was somewhat aware of the impact, but getting into your stuff made me, you know, really quite concerned. I wonder what you have to say to parents in terms of just reassuring them you know, reassuring their anxieties about where this is all going and what practical advice you might have for somebody like me.
1: So I think one thing to keep in mind, this is actually a good news story. A lot of the things that influence mental health, whether it's children or adults are out of our control. We can't help the genes we were born with. We can't help the bad things that some of the bad things that happen to us. We're not going to solve poverty overnight, unfortunately, but we have control over how we spend our leisure time. And as parents, we have some control in influencing how our, especially how our younger children, but also how our teens spend their leisure time. So we can try to place an emphasis on the activities that are beneficial for mental health and happiness like getting together with friends and family face to face, like getting enough sleep, going out and getting exercise, watching a sunset, being present in the moment, as opposed to things that are not particularly beneficial, like spending hours and hours on social media or um, sitting and watching TV for a long time We can use these technologies for what they're good for. Smartphones are a wonderful technology. They're very convenient. They can save us a lot of time. They can help keep us and our kids safe. But then we have to put them down and go live our lives. So the way I sometimes put it is this way, that smartphones should be a tool that we use and not a tool that uses us.
0: Right. I I really love the way you put that. I think it's a really powerful and memorable way to uh, to keep a perspective on this whole issue. So thank you so much for that. I am mindful of the time and I know you've got a lot going on today. So maybe I'll just uh, leave you with uh, one final question. If there's anything else you'd like to say on this issue before we break?
1: Um, I think that's it. I think we've covered a lot.
0: Okay, super. So thanks again for taking the time. i um, really excited to get this out to our listeners and I'm looking forward to seeing you in Montreal uh, next week.
1: All right. Thank you.
0: All right. Take care. You too. Bye-bye. Bye.